0: i'm ruth i'm one of the pastors here and today is our third week in our january series winter kindness and i wanted to start us off with three very brief stories of kindness the first one takes place in seal beach california um, uh, john chan and his wife stella established a donut shop there 30 years ago uh, but. Uh, Stella suffered a brain aneurysm and needed a lot of care, which John couldn't provide because he had to be in the shop all day. Some people in the community heard about the chance situation and they offered to set up a GoFundMe uh, crowdsourcing kind of a site um, on their behalf. But John was adamant. They didn't want that. They had built up their business themselves um, and they weren't looking for handouts. Um, but then John noticed that people started coming into the shop earlier and earlier. And as one newspaper article put it, every morning beginning at 4.30, customers flock to the donut shop. They buy up all the glazed, all the frosted. They drink up the coffee as they hand over their cash and their love. By 7.30 AM, the bins are empty and Chan's heart is full. In the second story, uh, Clarence Stevens was out shopping and he returned uh, to his car only to find that he had locked his keys and his cell phone inside. Uh, He responded probably as most of us would, with prayer and fortitude. No, he didn't. Um, he tugged at the door handles. He, uh, you know, kicked the tires. He said a few choice words, and a teenager riding by on his bike saw this and asked Clarence uh, what was going on. And he explained and and said, you know, even if I could call my wife, she can't bring the keys down because we don't have another car, and there's no one to give her a ride, and and all this stuff. And the teenager. Um, gave Clarence his cell phone and said call your wife tell her I'm on my way and the guy said no you can't do that it's an eight mile round trip um, you know past that of you and he said don't worry about it and um, as as Clarence writes he says an hour later he returned with the key I offered him some money but he refused he said let's just say I needed the exercise and then the third story is from Mrs. Uh, she writes A woman at our garage sale wore a perfume that smelled heavenly and familiar. What are you wearing? I asked. White shoulders, she said. Suddenly I was bowled over by a flood of memories. White shoulders was the one gift I could count on at Christmas from my late mother. We chatted a while, she bought some things and left. A few hours later, she returned holding a new bottle of white shoulders. I don't recall which one of us started crying first. Three acts of kindness. In a way, they're very ordinary, uh, just normal people, not acting super heroic or or making a huge sacrifice, but simply being there for each other. And I'm sure things like this happen all over the world every day, but they're inspiring because I'm sure for the the people involved, that wasn't an everyday occurrence. Um, Things like that are, are impactful because we don't expect people to be so kind, to go to those lengths, to take the time out, Uh, to be kind in those kind of ways. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at some reasons why um, we're not always as kind as we might like to be, including our tendency to see ourselves, if not at the center of the universe, uh, perhaps a little closer to the center than than other people. Our failure to recognize our oneness with others and and the cost involved in being kind sometimes, uh, particularly in terms of time and energy. Uh, That, I I know for me, seems to be the resources I have the least of uh, sometimes. We're busy. Hopefully, we are good kind of busy. Hopefully, our lives are full of worthwhile activities and meaningful relationships. But if we have no time to stop and notice the people around us and to interact with them, no time to be interrupted and inconvenienced, no time to be kinder than necessary, perhaps we're actually too busy no matter how good the things are that fill our lives. Are we interruptible people? Or are we so caught up in ourselves and the importance of our lives that we don't have time to see and listen to others? Throughout this series, we've been building on the theme of the incarnation, of God taking on the frailty and vulnerability of humanity in the form of a baby as we celebrated at Christmas, of God identifying with the brokenness of humanity in Jesus' baptism as we celebrated at Epiphany, and of God living here among us. As we've read in previous weeks, it says in John 1, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus dwelt with a specific community in time and space. He didn't just briefly appear. He wasn't just passing through. He was real and present over time. He got to know his neighbors and his glory was seen in grace and truth. Jesus's glory was not in centering himself, as we so often do. He wasn't self-promoting or self-serving. Rather, he came with grace and truth. I love the coupling of those two words. Jesus wasn't fake nice. There was nothing inauthentic about him. He was honest. He was full of truth. He expressed real emotions. He was genuine. He had integrity, but he was also full of grace. He accepted people just as they are. He treated them with kindness and respect, grace and truth. Through the incarnation, God experienced what it is to be human. Through Jesus, we have assurance that God understands us. But the incarnation has implications beyond that. Because Jesus was not just temporarily human until he died or until he was resurrected or ascended. Rather, in some amazing way that I don't understand, the resurrected Christ brought humanity into the Godhead. God's oneness with humanity is forever. And God doesn't just participate in our humanity, but invites us to participate in the divine nature. We are invited to share God's heart, to see with God's eyes, to be Christ's body on earth. And we see that in passages like the following. We have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. By living in love, we live in God. That's an amazing thing to say. It's got profound implications. And we're actually going to explore uh, First John in the next series, um, series after this, starting in February. But just briefly here, by living in love, love for God, love for one another, John tells us we're not just imitating Jesus. We're not just following his example, but we are actually living out our oneness with God and our oneness with one another. At the very beginning of the service, B'nai Brown talked about empathy. Uh, She pictured it as choosing to climb down into a hole, uh, into a dark place where someone else is. The choice to step into the place of another obviously has got a parallel with the incarnation, God stepping into the place of humanity. Through empathy, we demonstrate our oneness with God and with one another. Empathy is an interesting concept. As social scientists identify various types of empathy, uh, one of the most common ways of categorizing uh, are these three types, um, cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. Cognitive empathy is taking another's perspective. It's understanding uh, why they're thinking the way they are at an intellectual level. Emotional empathy is feeling another's emotion, connecting to them by relating to our own experience of those emotions. And compassionate empathy is where we understand where they're coming from and we share in their feelings, but we remain sufficiently objective uh, to be able to help where where it's appropriate. Interestingly, I think it's interesting anyway, uh, to some extent, empathy can be understood from brain chemistry. Uh, When we do something, when we uh, reach out and, and grab an object, for example, a specific set of neurons fires in our brain. But a subset of those same neurons uh, fire when someone, when we watch somebody else do that same action. So when we see someone do something, those neurons that scientists term mirror neurons uh, simulate that action in our brain. So chemically, to some extent, what happens to you actually happens to me, too. Just a briefly. Uh, A brief uh, nerdy sidebar here uh, for those who like this kind of stuff, which I do. Uh, The neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran has done some fascinating research into mirror neurons. In particular, he's worked with people who are amputees and who often, as you may know, feel pain in their phantom limb. Um, And he's found that they can actually experience physical relief by watching somebody else have their limb massaged. And he's done a lot of very creative experiments to show that the reason we don't usually physically experience what someone else is experiencing, even though a lot of the same uh, neurons are are firing in our brain, is that the pain and touch receptors in our skin tell us it's not actually us that's been touched. That's why we don't get confused between what's happening to you and what's happening to me. But when you amputate a limb or you anesthetize it, that feedback loop is disrupted and the brain can't distinguish between what happens to you and what happens to me. In other words, from this perspective, as Ramachandran puts it, the only thing that separates me from you is our bloody skin. Fascinating work. Um, We are way more connected than we realize. Mirror neurons appear to be involved in some way in the human capacity for empathy, but empathy is not just a chemical process, not by any means. And and the researchers that are are working on this make that point um, quite a number of times. Empathy is also a choice that we make, and it's a skill that we can develop. We need to choose to see our connection to others and to focus on that. We need to relate the emotions of others to things that we have experienced, but at the same time, keep that person centered, not put ourselves back into the center of the universe. And scripture calls for this kind of empathy. We read in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God says, you've been there, you know how it is. You know how it is to be weak and oppressed and to need help, to to be hungry and to be an outsider without a home. So offer the love and the kindness, the help that you once needed. Empathy, that sense of oneness fuels justice as we were looking at last week. But empathy is not just for negative emotions. We read in Romans uh, 12, rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn. We're called to also celebrate the success of others. And sometimes I think this can actually be harder than mourning with those who mourn. It can be harder to decenter ourselves, to make it not about us in the context of someone else's joy, particularly if they're rejoicing over something we would also like to have. When we mourn with those who mourn, we can at least feel good about the fact that, you know, we've been the compassionate person, we've been supportive, Um, But when we rejoice with those who rejoice, it really isn't about us at all, or rather it's about us, but it's not about me. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and not making it about ourselves is really hard. Can we have that same kind of joy for someone else's success, someone else's happiness that we would have for ourselves? Social scientists say that we actually bond more deeply over this kind of positive empathy than we do over empathy at hard times. And of course, to develop any kind of empathy, as we were saying a few minutes ago, we have to be willing to stop, to be interrupted. We have to take the time to see the people around us and to hear their stories. I'd like us to look at a story from the Gospels now, a story that um, I think really illustrates Jesus's kindness in doing exactly that. It's the well-known story of the woman at the well, and Jesse is going to come and read that to us.
1: Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him.
0: Thank you. This story has so many levels of meaning. It's written in a very stylized way and it's placed in John's gospel at a very specific point. Um, It's clearly meant to contrast with a conversation Jesus has uh, chapter before with a guy called Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus is an honorable Jewish man uh, who comes secretly at night to ask Jesus questions. And although he's a religious teacher and so should have been expected to understand, he misunderstands everything and kind of disappears off into the darkness at the end of the story. And then here, of course, is a Samaritan woman. She's dishonorable. She's exposed, she's out in the noon sun. Jesus asks her questions and although she initially misunderstands, she ends up going off to tell others about Jesus the Messiah. This is also a play on romance literature of the time. A lot of Jewish stories have a a Jewish guy meet his future bride at the well Uh, Here we've got a woman who's had five husbands. And so, you know, there's kind of a theme here about where can real love be found. There's also a theme of water with mention of baptism at the beginning and so on. There is lots and lots of levels to the story. So this is your favorite story. We're not going to do it justice this morning, right? We're just going to look at it through the lens of kindness. I just want us to look at four uh, pretty simple points. First, Jesus dwells. Uh, going back to our verse from John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus stays put in this story while all the other ca- characters come and go. I don't know if you noticed that, um, you know, we have the, uh, the disciples leave, the woman arrives, the disciples come back, the woman leaves, and then the villagers arrive. Um, and the whole time Jesus apparently sits by the well. He isn't frantically looking for people to teach or heal or engage, uh, but he sits in a public place and is available. And he's willing to be inconvenienced. Uh, he's on his way to Galilee, we're told. Uh, but at the end of the story, which we didn't read, um, he goes to the Samaritan village and, and ends up staying there for two days. Jesus is interruptible. Second, Jesus embraces oneness. There are all kinds of cultural taboos here that should keep Jesus from, um, from interacting with this woman. And he chooses to ignore them all. She's a woman she's a samaritan her bucket is ritually unclean he can't drink from it but he doesn't care in this cultural context jesus is much, very much the superior of this woman and yet he makes himself vulnerable by expressing his own need he's thirsty he needs water just as she needs water and he asks her for help he puts her in the position of control And she basically mocks him for being so in need that he has to ignore the cultural norms. Where's your bucket if you're going to get water, she asks him. And third, Jesus listens with truth and grace. He asks her questions, as he so often does uh, in encounters with people, and he listens to her. He shows her that he understands her life. He knows about her troubled marital status. And that society, uh, very few women had the power to divorce. So almost certainly this woman was either abandoned or widowed uh, repeatedly. And each time her status will have been lowered. So it seems now she's found someone who will take her in but not marry her. And that would be disreputable, dishonorable. But that's not how Jesus treats her. He doesn't lecture her or judge her. Uh, He doesn't tell her to repent. He treats her with respect and with seriousness. He discusses theology with her and challenges her to go deeper. Even lets her change the, the conversation, uh, redirect it. You know, he's asking her about her living situation, and, and she starts saying, Well, we worship on that mountain over there. And Jesus switches to talking about worship. He doesn't force his agenda or use his power as a superior male. But neither is he fake nice. He doesn't flatter her or pretend he agrees with everything she says. He shows both grace and truth. And then fourthly, Jesus shares something of himself with this woman. He doesn't just ask her about who she is. He shares who he is. He opens up to her and reveals his own identity. He offers her the gift of life, but in an incredibly gracious way. Jesus says he has living water, and if she asks him, he'll give it to her freely but there's no condescension or manipulation. There's no force. Uh, He simply shares who he is and what he has to offer. He shows compassionate empathy. Now, as we noted, uh, the story is written in a very stylized way. And obviously this is not a transcript at all of the conversation. It captures the essence of an interaction in a certain way that makes um, certain theological points and fits into the overall narrative of the author. But what's interesting about this story and a few others um, in the Gospel of John is that it's presented very much as a conversation. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we generally get monologues, more or less. You know, somebody will say something or do something or uh, maybe ask a question or Jesus will ask a question. In in about half of the interactions in the Gospel, Jesus asks a question. But then Jesus kind of takes it from there, right? Um, So the authors of the Synoptic Gospels are primarily interested in what Jesus had to say, not in what people said to Jesus. That's understandable, um, you know, in these short accounts of Jesus' life. But one thing it does is it kind of creates the impression that Jesus did all the talking. And stories like this one, I think, show clearly that was not the case. These were conversations. Jesus didn't just ask a question and then give a lecture. He listened to people. And there's great kindness in listening to people, in decentering ourselves and our story and letting people share their story. The author David Augsberger wrote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. We view being heard as loving because we actually know it's really hard. It's hard to listen well. There is noise constantly thrown at us and we tune most of it out. We have to, to get through the day. We're also busy, as we noted earlier. We respond quickly without thinking, uh, without considering the impact of our words. We rush to judgment. Our brains are busy. We're thinking lots of thoughts all the time. The average American speaks at a rate of 125 words per minute, but our brains process closer to about 800 words per minute. So even when we're listening, we also have lots of extra time and processing capacity to think about other things, to think about, What is this person saying? How does that affect me? Or what do I want to say next? Or or thinking completely different things and getting distracted by other chains of thoughts. Listening well requires attention and energy and discipline and motivation. It doesn't come naturally to us. So how can we learn to listen well, to listen with empathy? And why does that matter? Well, to answer that, I'd like to invite Sarah Burke to join me. Sarah, as uh, many of you know, is a longtime member of Cedar Ridge. She was on staff for many years and then she left to pursue her career as a professional counselor. And so let's give her a round of applause. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. G, you got it? G, yeah. Do you want to uh, say a little bit about yourself for anyone who doesn't know you?
2: Yeah. So in tw- uh, right at the end, or what was it? Not the end of the pandemic. It's the beginning of the pandemic. I was rounding the corner and finishing my um, master's in clinical mental health counseling. And so I was here for the beginning of our transition into pandemic life as a church. And then I left um, at the end of 2020 to go do my internship year um, at a place called Village Counseling in Ellicott City begin my new journey.
0: Good time to get into that field, right? You you had plenty of work. (laughs) Yeah,
2: kind of a weird time to talk about job security, but yeah, it's, it's been a time of great need. So.
0: So Sarah, why is it important to listen well?
2: Well, like I think you, I think you've touched on a lot of this already. But um, to listen well, I think it gives the person being listened to a sense of validation and uh, feeling affirmed in their experience, experience. Excuse me. And I think you've touched on this as well. It builds connection, um, and it's also just a way of demonstrating care. Um, and like what that quote you just used, you know, to be heard is to feel loved. And so I think as a counselor, a lot of times I I find that with my my clients that. Um, when I, when they feel heard, they feel loved. And I don't, I think that is indistinguishable.
0: Hmm. And how can we, how can we listen better?
2: Um, so I think you've talked about empathy and I think for me, one of the biggest tools as a therapist is curiosity, um, to just remain in a posture of curiosity. There's a lot of skills you can learn to listen well, but I think having a posture of curiosity means, you know, asking, clarifying questions, perspective taking, um, and not being non Um, it just kind of sets the tone for, um, listening without having to think of, okay, should I do this? Should I do that? Um, If that, if that answers your question.
0: What about those of us who are, who are not, um, we're not, our first thing is not to go and talk about all our problems. I think some of, some of us, you know, we're kind of private people that, that might be hard. How can we get out of our shell and, 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 and cultivate that kind of curiosity? Um, so that wasn't on the list of questions. So you've got to wing that one. What's that? (laughs) That wasn't on the list of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in terms
2: of like skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I, this was for me, one of the biggest learning curves as a therapist, because I think you come into it thinking, oh, I either know how to listen or I don't know how to listen, but learning to listen well can, is a skill. And so as a therapist, that was sort of for me, like the crutch. Oh, there's actually things I can do to listen well, which some of those skills are one, one big skill is silence. And actually in the process of learning to be a therapist during the role plays and stuff where your peers are watching you, it's interesting because the mark of your growth i think is your ability to shut up and listen and not actually speak um we th- we i think often think that asking a bunch of questions or you know is is the art of counseling but i think as i have grown in that role i've discovered that it's actually the art of being quiet and not saying a whole lot sometimes mm-hmm which can be hard, you know, because I think our propensity is to think of what we're going to say next or, and sometimes I get caught up in that even is how am I going to help this person? And so we get caught up in our own story without just pausing and being able to listen to the one that's being told to us. Mm, that's
0: great. Um. So th- how, how do we, so there's a tension right between that, not centering ourselves, but also sharing a bit of our, ourselves do you have any thoughts on that or any a- a- advice for that? Because uh, empathy is partly is is identifying with emotions and what people are going through. But it's so easy to then say, oh, that's just like this time when blah, 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 blah. And then and then you realize, oh, wait, I'm now I'm talking about me. Do, I mean, do you have any advice now?
2: I mean, I think that is I think that's a tough one because you know, I think I'm sorry, can you say the question? Yeah. Just, just This is a, my first time being in front of a crowd.
0: It's <laughs> like really intimidating. And um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, But that tension between we want to identify with someone, but we don't want to make it about us. Yeah. So uh, how, how do you, how do you as a counselor do that? I mean, you know, we want, we do want to say, oh, I know how it is, but We don't. And, you
2: know, so I mean, in a therapist role, I think what's different is you don't often disclose your personal things. So I think that creates an automatic boundary. But I know in relationships with friends and stuff, it can be really easy to to hijack the conversation. Um, And so I think it's kind of a matter of, saying just that little bit I can really eat or I think Roger Sandberg once another therapist here said sometimes he says I have my own version of that and so I think keeping in mind like yeah I have my own version of that but it's sort of doing a mental check-in with oneself too of but this isn't my this isn't my moment you know it's it's the person I'm listening to's moment.
0: And you mentioned boundaries just now and obviously that's that's super important for for a professional counselor but even in our relationships you have any um any thoughts about boundaries?
2: Yeah, I mean, I obviously, you know, when you when you take in whether you're listening to a friend's issues or your own, your client's issues, you know, it's a matter, I think there's a level of compartmentalizing that has to happen, which is kind of being able to, and and that's also something that I think we learn and develop as as humans, um, which is being able to take in everything, um, be with the person in the moment, but also be able to give yourself reprieve from that and recognize like this is their story. I'm with them. I can be compassionate, but that doesn't mean this is also my problem and that I need to carry that with me. And, and, and I think that's a growth curve for all of us, you know, therapists and individuals alike.
0: And that can be a way of expressing respect for that person too, can't it? Not trying to fix them. I, I know, Right.
2: That. Right. Cause it can be really easy to get into fix it mode, offering solutions, but just being able to, to, you know, hear the story and then let it go. And, and you know, let your compassion and empathy be the thing that, that sticks with them. Great,
0: thank you. Was there anything else you wanted to add or?
2: Um, not really, I think mostly just that it's it's something that like even empathy, I think you touched on this, is empathy is also a skill. I think some of us think we're, empa- some of those are maybe wired more empathetically than others. But there are things that, you know, perspective taking and curiosity and stuff that can also communicate empathy, even if you don't feel like that's a natural thing for yourself.
0: So we can all work at this and become better yeah. listeners. And yeah. Friends. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, time. For- <sighs> Compassionate listening, listening well with empathy, is an act of kindness. But it can also be a source of blessing. Getting to know people, expressing that curiosity that Sarah was um, talking about, understanding who they really are, empathizing with their perspective and their emotions, and sharing something of ourselves can help us to have a greater experience of the connectedness, the oneness that actually does exist between people, but that we are so often oblivious to. It can help us to push back against the individualism and the isolation of our culture and gain a greater appreciation for the unity of humanity, God in us and us in God. When the disciples returned to the well where Jesus had been talking to the woman, we read that they urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was caught up in this conversation with the woman. It fed him. Seeing her eyes open up to who Jesus actually was, uh, seeing her heart open up to hope, hope that she wasn't a cast off woman who needed to hide away in shame, but she was someone who was seen and known and valued. Seeing her run back to town full of joy, proclaiming the news to everyone she could, This fed Jesus in a way that no mere bread could ever do. We're going to take communion in just a moment, if the band would like to come up. And clearly, a small piece of cracker, a sip of juice, they don't feed us physically. It's not a meal that we're having. But they feed us in another way. They remind us of our deep connection, our oneness with one another and with God. They remind us of our need to imitate the incarnation, to engage in the incarnation, to live out God's presence on earth. We want to do what Jesus did. We want to also, on the next slide, please, uh, we want to dwell. We want to be present to people. We want to be interruptible, to take time to see people, to take time to listen to them, to engage with them, hear their stories. We want to embrace oneness. Uh, We want to de-center ourselves and make space for others to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We want to listen with kindness, with truth and grace, suspending judgment. We wanna slow down and pause before we speak. Uh, Not try to fix people or to paint a silver lining, but to listen with empathy and connect with them so that they are not alone. And we want to share our stories and our lives. We want to be willing to be vulnerable Uh, about ourselves and our imperfections, to risk being misunderstood, to give the gift of time and presence. Let's commit ourselves to this way of Jesus as we come to take communion. Uh, You can come and take it at the tables at the front or the table in the middle. You can take that uh, back to your seat or you can uh, celebrate it with the other people around the table. Whatever makes you feel most comfortable. Also, this time, uh, as usual, you can can light a candle at the back as a form of prayer or at the station for Ukraine. Uh, You can also write out a prayer and put it in the frames under Journey and Grow. And a team will uh, pray for you during the week. You can also pray with someone um, at the back if you would like to do that. You might want to make a financial gift, put it in the uh, boxes at the back, or just sit and listen to the music uh, or sing. Uh, Let's pray, and then please uh, respond as feels appropriate. God, we thank you that we are not alone. We thank you that you are with us, that you are present to us always, that you are one with us, you are in us and through us. We thank you that it's in you that we live and breathe and have a being. We thank you for our community too. We thank you that uh, you've given us each other. Pray that we would cherish this gift of community, that we would see you in one another. God, slow us down. Open our eyes and our ears to people around us. Soften our hearts to one another. Help us to be kind as you are kind. Amen.